0: Grateful to have again uh, tonight, uh, Reverend Nathaniel Stamper, who uh, pastors over uh, in New Holland at our sister church, Saint Stephen's uh, PCA Church. Uh, if he looks familiar to you, and you think, "Boy, I, I think I've seen him recently," uh, Nathaniel told me that he uh, he came on Wednesday night to spy out our Wednesday evening dinners. Uh, to see whether their church might do something similar. So he and his family were with us on Wednesday. Uh, he was here preaching uh, earlier uh, in 2019, and we're glad uh, that he's back. Thank you, Daniel, for preaching for us tonight. Good evening. If you'd please uh, invite you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 88, uh, which I believe is in page 494 of your pew Bibles. will be reading the entire psalm. And it is a privilege to be here uh, this evening. I bring warm greetings from New Holland, from St. Stephen Reformed Church. Psalm 88. Psalm 88. Let us read God's Word. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to Mahalith, Lianith, a of Heman, the Ezraite. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you, Selah? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? afflicted and close to death. From my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Eternal God, we give You thanks for this Word and we ask that You would speak to us through the reading and preaching of Your Word and that the name of Christ would ever be praised. Amen. If you put all the Bible's poetry together, it would be longer than the New Testament. The Lord's Spirit inspired these these poems that beautifully capture what prose cannot. And this particular psalm is a lament psalm, meaning it's a poetic prayer in which a need is presented to God in hopes that He will resolve it and that He will be praised. And most often what you see in these lament psalms is is the hope for the resolution, but not in this one. One commentator calls Psalm 88 the, the saddest psalm in the whole psalter while another claims its author is unrelieved by a single ray of comfort or hope. The word darkness appears three times, verses 6, 12, and 18. The psalmist is surrounded by darkness, light, and darkness, contrasted themes throughout the entire Bible. Over half the occurrences of this word, darkness, are in Job, Psalms, and Isaiah. And it represents often evil, death, imprisonment, confusion, and even divine punishment. The word darkness is the last word of this prayer. It leaves us, the reader, left in darkness wondering, is there any comfort here? What encouragement is there for us in this psalm? This evening, it's my prayer that we will be encouraged by this psalm that even in the the darkest suffering, there is still a ray of light for us. And I hope to see this by looking at three points. The pain of this darkness, the grace found in darkness, and the light shown in the darkness. First, the pain of darkness. One aspect of the psalmist's pain is the length of his pain. Verse 1, Day and night this man cries to the Lord, He's in prayer constantly pleading for relief. He's been praying for a long time because he's been in long-term agony. He, he looks back to his youth. Verse 15, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. He looks to his present. Verse 16, Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. The psalmist minces no words about his pain. He's suffered for a long time, and he sees no end in sight. He's surrounded, overwhelmed. And in communicating the length of his pain, he also speaks to the intensity of his pain. Verse 3, For my soul is full of troubles. Now, the English here may be a bit weak. The word trouble communicates evil, misfortune, calamity, Disaster. This is not a long but but subtle pain. It's a crippling pain that appears to have paralyzed his life. He describes his life as drawing near to death by the names and phrases like Sheol, go down to the pit, a man with no strength, like the, the slain lying in the grave, as one who God has forgotten. Can you feel the pain of this man? Verse 7, to me, comes off particularly strong. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. One Old Testament scholar argues that the language being used here is the picture of, of being under a waterfall, constantly barraged by the pounding heavy water of God's wrath falling onto you. At the very least, his suffering is as relentless as the waves constantly smacking the shore. He's drowning in darkness. He's in excruciating agony. And Another aspect of this suffering is not only its length and its intensity, but the type of pain. There's different intensities and many types. He's been rejected. He's alone. This rejection comes in two forms. First, verse 8, "...you have caused my companions..." to shun me. You made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. The psalmist has been rejected by his closest friends, those whom he shares affection and trust. Verse 18, You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And as if to be betrayed by close friends is not enough, the second form of his rejection is that he feels he feels rejected by the Lord. Almost in conflict with his opening statement, he sees God as the cause of his misery. Verse 6, You have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse 8, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. He's so conflicted in his words. His circumstance overwhelms him. And you can see that the circumstantial darkness is paralleled by the spiritual darkness he is experiencing. He questions why God would bring this darkness into his life. and It's at this point you cannot help but to think and see the similarities between this psalmist and Job. Job was a God-fearing man blessed with family and wealth, but all of these were taken from him. He was miserable, and at one point he wished to die. God had permitted Satan to afflict misery on Job, and, and Job could not understand why God would allow this, and this is what the psalmist is struggling with too. And with Job, Satan wanted to demonstrate that suffering wouldn't strengthen his faith, but destroy it. For those of you who have read Job, you know that this very purpose Satan had in making Job suffer was foiled in God's providence. Job was only driven closer to the Lord. His sin was exposed and now Job's testimony strengthens faith for so many generations of Christians. Likewise, this is what this psalm offers to us today. The Apostle Peter said about suffering that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, gold is refined by having its impurities removed through a fiery process. And in a similar fashion, our suffering results in a refined faith, even if we cannot see it. Even if, like Job and the psalmist, we never know why. You see, the Christian faith doesn't deny suffering, but it actually promises it. And it also promises that somewhere in it, grace is to be found, even if you never understand how or why. This leads us to our next point the grace found in darkness. Somewhere in this lament, God's grace is evident. As he refines the faith of sufferers. Now, I keep referring to the author as the Psalmist, but he has a name. The superscript gives it to us. His name is Heman, and we learn from other places in the Bible, like First Chronicles, that he was among the choral Levitical Singers. So the choral height singers worked at the tabernacle, and they actually would lead Israel in procession to worship. The psalter is the music and the prayer book of God's people. So this psalm, as filled with grief and doubt as it is, was one of the songs that they would sing in worship. Think about this. They actually sang this in worship services. Paul Tripp and Tim Lane wrote, Honest expressions of fear, pain, and doubt were welcomed in the place of worship. This kind of honesty before God is meant to be part of our worship. We do not have to put on spiritual masks to approach God. God expects honesty from us. and Heman shows us that bringing our emotions and and our insecurities before the Lord is itself an act of worship. Because our lives aren't always happy. Our lives are far from ideal. Some live in perpetual suffering. And clinging to Christ and confessing our weaknesses and even our doubts to the Lord is itself an act of reverent dependence upon Him. The second grace we see in this psalm is that while Heman had his doubts about his future and God's role in his suffering, he still trusted, albeit mixed with doubt, but he still trusted God. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before You. He acknowledged God as his Savior, God of my salvation, and he acknowledged God as his Lord, using his covenantal name Yahweh, indicating his trusting relationship with God. In fact, he holds on to trust by confessing his doubts throughout the psalm using this covenantal name. Also, who is the psalmist crying out to throughout this entire prayer? Verse 9, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. Verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. When we suffer... Our world tends to shrink and we become preoccupied by that immediate circumstance and pain and it consumes us. And then we tend to turn in on ourselves and in doing so, we we turn away from God implicitly. Sometimes explicitly. But in turning in, we fail to turn out. However, Heman is resisting this. Rather, he is turning out to God and laying his dark circumstance and spiritual doubts before the Lord. In other words, he's taking his troubles to the very person he should. He's crying out to God, save me! But something changes in verse 14. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me, and your dreadful assaults destroy me. I think at this part of the psalm, Heman's lack of trust is no longer being confessed reverentially, but in an accusatory tone. In his spiritual darkness, he's daring to point a finger at God. And shockingly, shockingly, God responded by inspiring these words and giving them back to us for worship. And by the Holy Spirit inspiring this psalm and placing it in our Bibles, God is validating our range of experiences and emotions as sinners suffering in a broken world. I struggled with this psalm for a while. And I finally came across uh, this quote from Pastor Timothy Keller. He said that, quote, the very presence of these prayers in the Psalter, God didn't censor them. God didn't take them out. God didn't say, oh, I don't want those prayers in my Bible. I don't want to be identified with people who pray like that. Keller says, by keeping those prayers in the Bible, he does identify with them. He's saying, I'm still the God of this man in spite of the way in which he talks. In fact, God went further, right? He had his people sing this and worship. Back in July, um, our family vacationed at the beach. Uh, my wife's parents have a beach house at Wildwood Crest, and uh, I was ripe for a vacation. I was uh, becoming overwhelmed myself, uh, feeling stressed out, and I needed some time away from ministry. Uh, so we, uh, we took a week down at the beach, and um, during that vacation, we have three kids, a six-year-old Moses, a three-year-old Eden, and a one-year-old Elijah. Um, our kids were just having a blast. They were going ape on the beach. Uh, they were going ape in the beach house running around. Uh, but I could feel that like subtle burn in my patience with them. And I had warned them about running in the house. I did not want them running in the house. And it, it couldn't have been five minutes after I'd warned them. Uh, they were running. Moses, the six-year-old, and Eden were running from the kitchen into the living room. And they collided into my one-year-old son, Elijah, knocking him over. And by that point, I had lost my nerve. And I I popped up out of the recliner, uh, and I gave my oldest son, Moses, a good verbal scolding. And then I I took him by the shoulders, and I walked him into the hallway, and as I was going to send him into his room, I pushed him. I pushed a six-year-old boy on hardwood floor, and he was wearing socks. As soon as I did it, he fell and I immediately was overcome with the shame and the guilt of my sin. And to make it even worse, my three-year-old daughter had witnessed everything. And she immediately began crying and screaming and repeating, You pushed Moses. And at that moment, God's Spirit gave me enough sense to confess my sin to my children and ask for their forgiveness. But what happened later, as I began to think about that, is that in my prayers and in my meditation on this, I began to grow angry against the Lord for my sin. Why would, why would He allow my three-year-old daughter to witness what I had done to my son? And about a week after praying about this, I had this thought. What if in God's providence He allowed my daughter to witness and be horrified by my sin because He wanted my sin to be as repugnant to me as it is to Him? And what if to open my eyes and to drive me and my family towards Christ, I had to see the horror on the face of my three-year-old daughter Shocked at what her father, sinful father, was capable of in his own time of darkness. And my point is this it's often in the darkness that the hidden sin of our hearts is brought to the surface. No one likes being in the darkness, it's not the place of pleasure, but it's the place of grace. Grace doesn't always feel good to our natural selves. I said to an older, wiser friend one time that I think that as God is making us holy, that it doesn't always feel good. (laughs) And she looked at me almost incredulous and said, doesn't always? The process of sanctification is mostly painful. What pleasure is it to die to yourself? What feels good about carrying a cross to share in the suffering with Christ? What feels good about being in the valley or the furnace? Yet some of the greatest men and women in history were formed by suffering and hardship. I Remember an interview on television with B.B. King and he lamented working in the cotton fields as a child. But then asked if he, what he would have changed about his upbringing. He said nothing. He wouldn't have traded his experience for anything in the world. Why? Because it's in the darkness that we experience God's grace anew. It's where He cuts away our dead sinful flesh and circumcises our hearts that He forms us into who we are called to become. He brings us through 40 years in the wilderness for what? Deuteronomy 8. The Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. In the darkness, He will expose what needs to be exposed for our own good, with His light. And by pointing the finger at God and asking these questions of doubt, Heman's heart issues were exposed. Our words, our thoughts, our actions are exposed when we are in the darkness, because God is pleased to shine light on them, leading us to our last point: The light shone in darkness. Looking at verse 13. My companions have become darkness. Can you truly sing or pray these words entirely about yourselves? These words are not entirely true when we sing them about ourselves. But when we see Jesus as the supreme singer of lament, that these psalms are Christological, that they they point to Him Only then do we see that these words are true and prophetic. What do I mean? Well, you may be suffering. You may feel alone. Maybe you've lost a loved one or a loved one is suffering or you've been betrayed. This psalm acknowledges the range of human experiences and emotions and yet at the same time, it subverts it. You see, you may at times feel alone, But it isn't really true because God's Spirit is always present with you in your loneliness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Jesus will never leave nor forsake you. However, Jesus in the garden did experience true loneliness. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Jesus experienced this terror being helpless on the cross. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Jesus endured this as the Father poured out His wrath of God's justice that should have been afflicted on us. And it's in this sense that Jesus is not only the supreme singer of lament, but our representative singer of lament. Jesus was truly alone so that we would never have to be. Jesus truly received the wrath of God on the cross like standing under the waterfall of God's wrath so we would never have to. And He did it in your place if you trust Him. Jesus was betrayed in the deepest way imaginable so He can identify with us in our betrayals. His companions not only shunned Him but denied even knowing Him. He was the man of, of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. His soul was full of troubles, and he did lie slain in the grave. He was cut off from the father's hand. It wasn't just poetic expressionism, it was history. We also do not know why God allows suffering, but it cannot be because He doesn't care about us. Or else the psalm wouldn't be in our Bible. In fact, God in Jesus Christ was, was willing to come to earth and be thrown into the greatest suffering that was ever experienced. And he was willing to take his own medicine. He was the suffering servant prophesied to come. He was the supreme singer of lament who himself was surrounded by darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour on the cross. He knows the life of lament and suffering. So when you suffer, when I suffer, we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in every way. He even identifies himself with those like Eamon who struggle and have doubt. Paul says, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. He's our light in the darkness. There isn't anyone in this room that one phone call couldn't change the course of our lives. Yet, the Lord of the universe subjected himself to suffering in Jesus Christ and shares in ours when we are in the valley, when we are in darkness. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? You all know the answer to this question. Yes. In Jesus Christ, a wonder was worked for the dead when he arose. And for those in Christ, we will rise up again to praise him. Are wonders known in the dark? The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. I have no doubt that there is deep suffering in some of your lives that there's darkness but there is no suffering there is no suffering that the resurrection cannot comfort there's no darkness that the light of the resurrection cannot illuminate see the death of suffering was accomplished in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he will return to bring that final victory over sin and death for those who hope in Him. So in closing, Heeman's last words may have been darkness, but it doesn't have to be the last word for you. When we repent of our sin, that is acknowledge it before God in confession, and trust in Jesus Christ and His perfect work, the ultimate darkness of death and judgment is something we will never experience because Jesus already has. Let us pray. Jesus, we praise you. We praise you that you came to this earth, that you lived the life that we should have lived in our place, perfect obedience to God, that you have experienced firsthand what it means to suffer. That you can sympathize and empathize with us in our suffering. That we are never alone in our suffering. Because for those of us who trust you, you are present with us through your Spirit. And Lord, when we are in that valley, when we are in the darkness, shine your light on us through your Spirit and your Word. Keep us focused on the resurrection. Keep us focused on your return and how you will restore what is lost and broken in this world. Lord, help us to suffer well, not for our own experience, but that in our suffering, we would glorify you. That people would, would the world would look at us in our suffering and they would see Jesus. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.